Hey, this is the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Today, voices from the vault about energy and climate. An African friend tells us about his new book, Light Rail Transit in Hamilton, Ontario. Sounds good, but for whom? And the voice of an unforgotten urban activist, urging urban dwellers to make a difference. Welcome to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. The fossil fuel industry, the global carbon economy, is like a huge building that needs to be brought down in a monumental act of controlled demolition. The colossal scale of the task at hand suggests it will take decades, maybe even a half century, for the carbon edifice to be demolished. But demolish it, humanity shall. There is no other way out of the crisis. Relentless fossil fuel carbon burning is fueled, atmospheric CO2 rising by the tens of parts per million, earth warming and lockstep, Arctic and Antarctic melting, oceans rising. Hard to imagine where the political will and leadership required for this transition will come from. It will eventually come. When it does, decarbonization will surely stand among the most monumental transformative acts humans have ever embarked on. Agriculture, the adoption of the great monotheistic faiths, the foundation of cities, humanism, science, and capitalism, the fossil fuel-driven industrial revolution, the digitization of the human species. The world is such a sorry, scary place, it's hard to imagine what it'll be like when today's kids are my age. Still, just thinking about this great shift humans are embarking on right now may be reason to smile as this great building gets torn down. This is the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Well, if I had my way, if I had a wicked body, if I had a Lord Well, you're really pleased to tell it to me 
recorded in Dallas, Texas in December 1927. If I had my way, I would tear this building down. On this topic, here's something from our archives, bits of conversation about planet Earth and its fate. The first voice you're going to hear is that of William Fife. At the time I recorded this on a, a 1967 Niagara 3 mono reel-to-reel tape recorder. Fife was Professor Emeritus of Earth Sciences at the University of Western Ontario. Wikipedia refers to William Fife as among the world's most eminent geochemist, the winner of numerous prestigious awards over the course of his career, named a Companion of the Order of Canada in 1989. Bill Fife was every inch as articulate and congenial as he was brilliant when we met in his office back in 1992. He had an entertaining Kiwi way about him and great pipes. A few other voices follow Fife's here. I'll ID them afterwards. There is no question that, that uh, humankind has changed and is dramatically changing the composition of the atmosphere. Uh, in we, we keep talking about greenhouse gases and CO2, but we are doing lots of other things as well. We are, we are changing the chemistry of, well, the atmosphere dramatically, but we're also beginning to change the chemistry of everything on the surface of the planet, whether it's water or soil. The human population, which is only here because we've become very clever with certain technologies, and energy technology is one of the key ones, that our population is supported by fossil energy and most of that fossil energy comes from oil, gas, coal and plants. We know that since human population began to grow extremely rapidly and the use of energy grow extremely rapidly, that we have dramatically changed the carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, that the big carbon sinks we keep talking about, the oceans and things like this, cannot keep up with the rate at which we are pumping CO2 out of the tailpipes of our automobiles. But carbon dioxide has never been higher than it is right now, and it's rising. 
You, you can just look at the history of the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere, which we know very well from fossil atmosphere stored in things like ice and snow, that since the Industrial Revolution, it's begun to rise exponentially, and it, the rate of rise is still accelerating as man uses more energy. So I think this is fact. So the big buffer systems or the big absorbers aren't keeping up with Homo sapiens and his activity. Records from the Atlantic kept by the British Navy, and they published this about 10 or 15 years ago, and it's very spectacular. If you take all the lighthouses, light ships that watch the ocean, that the average height of a wave in the Atlantic Ocean has increased 30% since 1960. Now, if you go and talk to an applied mathematician who deals in convection theory, he will tell you that as an object gets hotter, convection becomes more chaotic. Early Earth, present Earth, but any soup pot on the stove, same thing. The hotter and hotter it gets, the more and more it boils over. So, the applied mathematician would say hot objects are more chaotic, so you are liable to get bigger variation. So I think to a um, certain types of mathematicians dealing with a fluid, the atmosphere or the ocean, that's warming up a little bit, we would expect to see higher wind velocities, more chaotic patterns of wind, which means the climate's going to be less predictable. And all this gets very exciting indeed. I think people dealing with uh, the sort of fluid dynamics of atmosphere, water systems, etc., would say that you will see more and more extreme events as the system heats up. And that, I, it's too early to say that we're going into a new pattern, but it is interesting, the things that are going on. Also, they would tell you that your predictability will get worse. And, and I think this is a very fundamental piece of science. Uh, if I take a system that is terribly cold and dead, it's also very predictable. Um, if I take an ice block sitting below zero, its behavior is quite predictable. If I take a soup pot at 100 degrees, its behavior is very unpredictable, as every cook knows. If we do a, a calculation of energy budgets for the Earth's atmosphere, it's very simple. You've got energy coming in from sunlight, you're re-radiated as long-wave radiation, and you lose it again at the surface of the atmosphere. If it was simply a linear process of energy coming in and reflecting back out of the system, we would have an atmosphere, we would have an Earth, where daily temperature extremes would be 100, 200 degrees Celsius. We'd go from boiling to freezing every day of the year. Obviously, this doesn't happen. We have a cycling within the atmosphere that moderates out these extremes. We have some very interesting questions coming up from this experiment, if you want to use a kind phrase of global climate change. That is our biggest challenge, trying to predict how the system will change. Systems are always changing, but the time scale is very much speeded up. Instead of taking 10,000 years to have a change of four or five degrees Celsius, we're going to try to do it in 100 years. and That could dramatically change the nature of interactions between organisms. And, and we are a part of that system. We are all in favor of looking for alternative ways to any, to any mass-produced energy, whether it's hydro or coal or nuclear, like 
decentralized energy just seems so much more logical in a big country like Canada, in a in vast spaces like what we've got in Saskatchewan. You've got to put the energy where the need is. And so in coming up with energy alternatives, it felt like if we went to someone to speak to them about not using nuclear, if we were to say anti-anything, or like anti-nuclear, anti-uranium, any of that, people quit listening because um, they don't want to be labeled on the radical side as being opposed to things. They like to be for things. They like to be looked at as being positive, positive and forward-thinking people. And you, uh, so you have to accommodate that. In the future, despite the greenhouse effect, despite global warming by carbon dioxide, etc., we are going to go into another glacial period. There is no doubt about that. It may take us another 100,000 years to get there, but we are heading towards another glacial period ultimately. Therefore, we ought to understand what kind of changes occur between an interglacial period and a glacial period. And we should be able to recognize the symptoms of the changes. How are we going to recognize small-scale changes on the um, time span of our own lives, on our own lifespan, um, when we're trying to put together a, a longer um, change, a longer-term change in terms of uh, thousands of years of climatic change? So we need to understand the kind of environments that are recorded in the interglacial. Um, sediments and also the we need to recognize the changes in those sediments that we may experience ourselves over the next hundreds to thousands of years. That's Carolyn Isles who continues to work in the School of Geography and Earth Sciences at McMaster University. You also heard Darwin Coxon recorded back in the early 90s at McMaster Today, Coxon carries on research at the University of Northern British Columbia in Prince George, B.C. You also heard the voice of Carla Bradick, who was living in central Saskatchewan at the time of this recording, working with a group called Energy Alternatives, and Bill Fife speaking in his university office. William Fife shuffled off this mortal coil in 2013 at the age of 86. You are listening to The Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Give me that good old strong corn liquor and fat back on the side. 
pawn will move you, Jack. If you want that chick to stay close to you, pick up daddy. Feed her what I tell you to. You know what that is? Fat back and corn liquor. Fat back and corn liquor. Give me that good old strong corn liquor and fat back on the side. Fat back and corn liquor. Fat back and corn liquor. Give me that good old strong corn liquor and fat back on the side. Yeah, if you got a good chick, try to keep her tight. If she want to cut loose on Saturday night, if you can't keep a home on ham and greens, cut a chunk from where the hog ain't lean. You know where that is. Fat back and corn liquor. Fat back and corn liquor. I gotta have my corn liquor and fat back on the side. Uh-huh. Fat back and corn liquor. Louis Jordan and his Timpani Five formed in 1938. The original sextet included Jordan singing songs now considered politically incorrect, blowing at times on alto sax, accompanied by Lem Johnson on tenor, Courtney Williams on trumpet, Clarence Johnson on piano, Charlie Drayton on bass, and Walter Martins on drums. Jordan and his Timpani Fives let the good times roll, keep a knockin', and Caledonia became rock and roll standards. Josephat Mwanzi is a Tanzanian journalist and writer. I had the good fortune of meeting Josephat back in 2005 at St. Augustine University of Technology in Mwanza on the southern shore of Lake Victoria in Tanzania, where he was studying and I was teaching. Josephat and I have stayed in touch. He has contributed a few stories to the Green Planet Monitor over the years. Now, he's written a book. I spoke with Josephat by Skype. I'm working on my my book. I'm finishing up a book that I, I told you I was writing about. It's a novel, but it is in Kiswahili. I want to translate it into English sometimes in the future, but at the moment I'm writing it, and it is called The Fog in Kiswahili. In Kiswahili, it's called Ukungu, The Fog. And what's it about? It is about uh, a young man who is uh, struggling to 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 make it in life in the midst of moral challenges in East Africa. So, after both his parents died, he, he wanted to to move to a. A, a, a town to, to, to a nearby town to start a new life but the challenges that he faces like lack of uh, um, uh, employment and uh, due to his low level of education she finds herself himself into um, gangs that convince him to to do uh, illegal business like a drug abuse and so that. But the challenge, I mean, what I'm, I'm trying to picture out is the um, challenges of formal structures in Africa that don't provide a bridge or don't give young people a hand so that they can uh, use their potentials, their talents to make it in their life. So as a result, some young people 
get into bad situations, bad things, bad gangs, and they lose their life. So that's, that's, that's the focus. And so is this in a way, this is a novel, but you're getting into a little bit of social commentary. Yes, and it is a research novel, which has some facts, but uh, I tried to put it in a novel, just narrating it and using some creativity to present the challenge that many young people are going through here in East Africa. Now, is this book going to be published? Sure. Uh, at the moment, it is in its final stages, and I wanted it to... Actually, I took it to... Like, yesterday, I took it to the National Bureau of... I mean, logo... Um, it's called the Language Bureau. It's called the Bakita. Bakita is the National Bureau of Language. It, it, they have actually wanted them to go through and to, to ensure that it it is okay with the language that I'm using so that they can give me a certificate. And that will back my, my novel because I wanted to propose it to be used in, um, in secondary or, or, or colleges, in secondary schools or colleges as, uh, as, um, as a literature uh, textbook to ensure that it is not fancy it is not having um, body test language. So in other words, when you're talking about approving the language, you're talking about the actual, the way you've written it, the content and the, the tone. Yes, exactly. Interesting. And uh, Yeah, and for me, I, I think it is better to, go, I mean, to have uh, a backup of the government institutions so that it can be more credible. How long have you been writing this book for? <laughs> Joseph <laughs> the ideas, uh, the idea of actually, I start almost ten years ago. I would say, if if I combine the idea, the when I started putting some ideas together, but then I lost it. Then I did. There was a time when I really didn't do anything with it. But last year. Uh, from April last year, I devoted much of my time to working on it and ensuring that it is now published. So I am expecting probably by May it will be uh, out. I want to ask you whether or not this is a little bit autobiographical, but I, I mean, I think not. You're, we, we've met on a couple of occasions. You've, I don't know what your background is going back to childhood, but... I'm wondering whether or not you're, uh, you're, the way you've written this book is you're drawing on real-life situations that you're familiar with, people you knew or know, or children you've known, younger people in the course of your life, your, your friends. Do you know exactly. what I mean? Exactly. Yes. The book reflects uh, the reality of life. It's not a fiction of that kind. I mean, actually it is... I said it is a, a, a novel, but based on a real life. Uh, it is partly part of my own struggle, but partly it is a struggle of my friends and other people that I have encountered over the years. People who are struggling, limping through life, trying to 
find a way to make it in life. But the first challenges, the challenges that if we had good structures, form of structure, I mean, formal social structures, those challenges would be uh, not a block for them to not to make it in life. So this is also, also it, it, it has stories which uh, come from my, my work as a journalist, the people that I have I've made, the stories that I have seen, the people that I have interviewed and listened to their challenges. So I tried to put it in, uh, in a book trying to make it very interesting, but uh, reflecting and uh, actually narrating the issues that is very representative in East Africa, and I would say in Africa as, as, as a whole. And, so what that's are those, you, and what are those issues? What are those challenges and issues? Uh, I mean, one, summarizing. Yes, yes. Um, one is the, I mean, the diseases that we face for example this young man called Ediga, who is the main character um, his parents died of a hiv aids uh, but in the book i don't want to mention it i mean i don't i don't i'm not many i'm not mentioning hiv aids because i have realized that the people don't want to read books that are mentioning hiv aids so I, I have mentioned it like just like a new disease, the big disease which is uh, eating a lot of lives in a village. So after that death, I mean the death of the parent, Edgar moves from a little uh, village north um, of Mwanza to, to, to and he, actually he moved to the city in Mwanza where he wants now to start a new life looking for for money to keep and support his younger his younger um, his two younger brothers uh, whom he is left with but in the struggle he gets into uh, a challenge of i mean one getting employment so the employment issue comes in the in, in the novel through a story of this young and other young people that he meets in the city. Then we, he, he now starts looking and making new friends, but some of them connect him to uh, a network of, uh, uh, of people who are doing uh, drug abuse business. So they, they, they convince him to make money through or such a thing, and uh, he, he he tries to escape from that by getting another, I mean, good friend who connects him to start to starting up a small business. So, but in the midst of uh, struggling to register for a new business, there are a lot of corruption, and the people don't support him, and some of his. Uh, um, uh, 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 commodities are taken away by the government officials, so chaos, and this is the reality, a, a true story that I faced in, in Mwanza. Young people, when they want to start small business, there are a lot of corruption, the government doesn't support them to do so, and they end up, probably some of them just 
uh, giving up. So those are the some of the so the there is a, a HIV and AIDS issue. There is unemployment challenge. There is also um, uh, lack of uh, investigate. I mean, clear investigation investigation on issues such that people are sometimes finding themselves in a jail because of unfair treatment and lack of investigation from the police. And this guy got into the police, I mean, into jail because of that. So that is, that, that is some of the things that I'm discussing in the book. Are these issues that can be discussed and are discussed in openly in Tanzania in the newspapers or in, uh, in you know, uh, novels or, or books that people write? Do people discuss these matters in Tanzania? As I speak here, I have a new book from a friend of mine who has just wrote it. It is called, Why is Tanzania Poor? The Role of Social Accountability in Poverty Reduction. Dr. Albanus Marcos, he gave this book to me today. It is a new book. But he was telling me that immediately after he published this book with this title, why is Tanzania poor? The government is panicking now. They want to know, and they have ordered him to go uh, to, 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 to Dodoma, in, in, the, in the capital city, to meet one of the ministers to this, to, to, so that he can present this book to them because they want to, to read it and to, to review it. What, what can I say? I mean, Maybe he's having an impact, it seems to suggest. Yeah, that, yeah. so it is, it, I mean, people, people try to write novels and the other reference books, but it is a little bit, I mean, I would say to some extent, it is dangerous because you never know, especially at this, at this moment. Freedom of speech in Tanzania, now it is becoming tighter and tighter. Because before, few years ago, Tanzania was growing up very fast in the context of democracy and the freedom of speech. But this new regime is not open to, 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 to dialogues that, um, that can challenge the government, can, can come up with different perspectives on issues related to say how the government is run, the challenges that the people face, and uh, something of that kind. So at the moment, freedom of speech is very, very tightened up and uh, very, very, very much pressed. And uh, even the media now, the newspaper, um, is somehow in, uh, in, in a panic situation and they don't know what to do because now they are becoming like partisan, they are doing partisan journalism because the government doesn't want to be criticized or it doesn't want to allow more discussions about how the country should be run. So it's a problem. But that's why I'm trying to be prudent by taking my book through the government institutions so that when it is out, I can have even a backup of that. This you, could book sell a lot of, you could sell a lot of copies. 
well, but also when I get the problem, people can say, no, you are talking about lack of poverty. I mean, I'm, we're talking about the poverty, lack of, I mean, I mean employment. But that is, that, that's not true. You, I mean, but I say, okay, my, my book passed this through your organizations and I got a, I mean, certificate. It is approved. Joseph Atmawanzi, thank you for joining me on the Green Blues show. Thank you for being there. Joseph Fatmawanzi is a Tanzanian journalist and author. Listen up for Joseph Fat in Green Blues shows to come. You are listening to the Green Blues show. I'm David Kattenberg. Clifton Chenier, native of Opelousas, Louisiana, master of Cajun Zydeco. That was magnifique. Here's something from an old Ottawa friend, veteran Canadian writer and broadcaster Stephen Dale. An audio piece Stephen has produced together with Hamilton, Ontario educator and writer Lillian Bloom. Lillian is also an old friend of mine. She's the one who got me into this line of business some years back. Stephen and Lil's story examines the LRT proposal now gathering steam in Hamilton. Light rail transit seems like a good idea. Characteristically, Stephen and Lil need to be convinced and drill down to deeper societal layers. Here is their story. Ah yes, the city traffic. Is there anything more emblematic of an old industrial city? The trucks barreling through downtown streets, the freight trains lumbering past the harbor, the nerve-wracking noise, the smell of exhaust. Prepare for a variation on this familiar theme. Light rail transit is coming to Hamilton. 14 kilometers of urban railway 
that will run on a separate right-of-way across the breadth of the city from McMaster University to East Gate Square. It's a different kind of transport meant to serve a different kind of city, people-oriented, post-industrial. It's shiny and sleek, a symbol of a city that's now better known for the art crawl than for its factories. Hamilton's recent transformation has been complex and confusing. There's been a lot of creative energy unleashed here, but a lot of people have been hurt by the rise in real estate prices that have come with Hamilton's resurgence. What role will light rail transit play in this process? How does transit planning intersect with a city's social goals? Will the LRT mean greater social equality, more widely distributed economic and social opportunities, or less? I certainly see LRT as, as something that could potentially be a boon to Hamilton. But we, again, we have to do it very carefully, and we have to ensure that people living in those communities aren't left behind. Talking to some of our members at the Poverty Roundtable, they will say it's great to have this world-class public transit system, um, you know, so I can get to the food bank and, and back. Looking at some of the personal crises that people are in, and you know, trying to be able to afford food, trying to be able to um, manage uh, manage housing when when uh, costs are, are going up, I think sometimes we forget about what our real priorities need to be and, and that's you know ensuring that we can pull nearly 100,000 people who, live in, who experience poverty in Hamilton uh, up to a better uh, quality of life for themselves and their families. That's Tom Cooper. He's the director of the Hamilton Roundtable on Poverty Reduction. He's one of the people that Stephen Dale has been talking to on his recent visits back to his hometown. Hey, Stephen. Hello there, Lil Bloom, longtime Hamiltonian. Yes, unlike you, I haven't lived in Hamilton since the early 1980s. So when I come back, the changes to me are really noticeable. And my sense from speaking with quite a few people is that there's a feeling of ambivalence here about what's been going on. It's kind of like a best of times, worst of times scenario. There's a real exuberance, but at the same time, some real misgivings. And those things are tightly bound together. At least that's the way it seems to me. And does ambivalent also describe what people expect from the LRT? I think so. Uh, most people would agree the transit projects in general have a transformative influence, but the question is how. There's no doubt that the LRT will be good for Hamilton's environment. It will make the air cleaner. It should also make the whole transit system more efficient. But it's not nearly as obvious whether a big transit project like this will be equally good for people at different income levels. Social inequality is a big concern in Hamilton, so will the LRT help solve that problem or will it make it worse? There's arguments on both sides. Let's talk about the negatives first. Like Tom Cooper just said, a project like LRT can distract people from the essential but unglamorous task of helping many thousands of Hamiltonians get out of poverty. And the worst case scenario is that Hamilton's LRT will advance the process of gentrification. So even more people will be displaced from their homes. 
Jeff Nevin is the executive director of a social housing group called Indwell. My block alone, I would say in the last 18 months, 60% of the houses have sold. So just on my street alone, mm-hmm. you used to be able to rent a half-decent apartment without bed bugs for mm-hmm. 400 bucks a month. Right. Uh, now those apartments are just gone. Yeah. And the result, apparently, is that lots of people with low incomes no longer have decent apartments. They've been pushed into overcrowded, overpriced, often unsafe rooming houses. And it could get worse. The location that Jeff is describing, the neighborhood where he lives, is in the central east end near Gage Park. The LRT is going to be built right through that area. Actually, it will go further east of there, out to Eastgate. That raises the fear that LRT will just bring gentrification further east. So that's the negative scenario. But there are other possibilities. Pro-LRT enthusiasts hold an almost a utopian view of transit as potentially at least a great social equalizer. Enter Paul Johnson. He's the city of Hamilton's LRT coordinator. He used to run Wesley Urban Ministries, which built a lot of social housing. Transit is good for all income levels in a community, so it's wonderful. I know we're, we're really encouraged by the, the investment that's going to follow uh, LRT being implemented in Hamilton. But I'm also encouraged by the fact that this allows people to get to school, to get to work. And the more rapid and reliable your transit is, the less stress you're going to place on those who need it. Those who need it come from all sorts of different backgrounds. I may hop on it to get to a meeting at McMaster or the east end of the city or take it to get to work. Others may be taking it to school. Others may be getting their kids to childcare, whatever it is. How you protect that mixture is going to be really, really critical. It's a critical piece of infrastructure that we have to stop seeing as a social service and start to see as just a part of the infrastructure of the community. The same way we should all have access to turning the tap on and having safe drinking water, we should be able to access affordable and reliable ways to get around the community. Getting people to appointments, getting people out of their home, keeping them socially active. And I think those are the key pieces of transit that get lost a bit in the conversation about cost and route and the rest. And in the same way that transit can enhance other initiatives to improve people's health, Paul Johnson says it would also be a key element in any plans to increase the supply of affordable housing. In cities like Toronto, the experts talk about transit deserts. That phrase refers to a lack of public transit in more distant areas where lower-cost housing tends to be located. Without reliable transit, lower-income people in those areas have trouble getting to work, getting to school, getting ahead. Better transit in Hamilton would allow more affordable housing to be built outside the city core without the burdens that come with transit deserts. You can't say to someone, sure, great, we're going to build some affordable housing in this area, but have no transit links. You know, have very, uh, you know, few services around because then you're also saying to that person, you've got to have a car. Well, that's an expense that may push them over the edge. So you're not really making that place affordable. You're sort of going halfway. So those are the things that we have to keep considering. So that's the vision of a transit system that works for everyone a cornerstone of an egalitarian city, an essential tool to make a better society. But how would it be achieved? Let's go back to Tom Cooper from the Hamilton Roundtable on Poverty Reduction. There's a challenge uh, for many people who don't have cars, certainly, to 
to get to their job and, and public transit right now isn't particularly efficient. It costs a lot and and we knew routes aren't funded uh, the way they need to be. And Calgary has just come up with a, uh, a really neat initiative looking at a sliding scale uh, in terms of uh, transit costs uh, for their riders so that maybe that's something we want to look at we worked with the uh, city a couple of years ago to bring in an affordable transit pass for low-income working people so it's basically a half price monthly pass that uh, people working on people who work but who have low incomes can access so about six thousand people make use of that every every month in hamilton i think we need to expand it beyond just people who who are working to anybody on a low income including including kids but the potential to benefit people in different circumstances goes well beyond reducing the cost of riding the transit system. When a transit project is built, it creates jobs and changes neighborhoods. Tom Cooper says some of the positive benefits of those projects should stay in those neighborhoods. There's been interesting examples across North America around uh, community benefit agreements and Los Angeles has done quite a few interesting things. Going to be jobs created uh, in, in building the LRT, let's try to ensure that uh, local people can have access to some of those jobs. Um, you know, it's obviously going to involve some, some training and skill development, but uh, here's a great opportunity for us to ensure that people living in some of those neighborhoods where the LRT line is going to run uh, have the opportunity to, to benefit. I think affordable housing is another one. Typically, when LRT lines are built, housing prices, property values skyrocket along the line. So let's ensure again that we have a, a wide range of mixed income housing. So we absolutely need to engage locally on that opportunity as well. The devil is in the details. These are currently non-binding agreements, okay. but they are ones where there is a formal and public commitment by the private sector who will build this and uh, Metrolinx who obviously is funding it to do it. So these are non-binding agreements to create apprenticeships for young people and to hire them to work on the LRT. Doesn't sound like a slam dunk, but hopefully it's a start. Now let's go back to that earlier reference to creating affordable housing along the LRT line. It turns out that this is an idea that's gaining traction in other cities. Here's a story from an article about the New York City subway published in the New York Times magazine. The writer is Jonathan Mahler, and his essay appeared on January 3, 2018. The gentrification that had been pushing east across Brooklyn along the L train began to creep into East New York. A neighborhood that had long been starved of resources was now in danger of being hit by a wave of development that could push out longtime residents. What was to be done? The solution proposed by the city government is far from familiar. As the subway moves in, the area is being rezoned mixed commercial and residential. Subway construction, in fact, will lead to the creation of vast amounts of wealth for developers. It will open up a new frontier they can build on. But in return, the city has imposed the condition that half of the 6,000 new homes must be affordable. In other words, rapid transit can be used as a lever to build more affordable housing. Similar possibilities exist in Hamilton. Paul Johnson says the area along the LRT route has been rezoned as a transit corridor. That means there will be more dense development along the LRT. There can be taller buildings with more units. 
and greater supply and more density will translate as lower cost housing. First round was make it more dense across the entire corridor. The next round will be go back and look at more specific sites where we could even be more intense. And then the last piece is you'll see opportunities for some interesting housing mix. It won't all be condos. And the further east you go along that corridor, uh, stacked towns may be the way, which is great. Those are family neighborhoods. So an 1,100 square foot townhome type thing, what a great thing and affordable for many families. And then you can have apartments that are, are perhaps even more affordable and you could be building in some protection for uh, the deep affordability that we need. And this is where an interesting opportunity exists with Metrolinks for us to talk with them about the properties they will be acquiring on this project. We should be identifying where we should be putting affordable housing. Why is Metrolinks involved in housing? Because Metrolinks bought properties they need to build the LRT. But they won't use all of that property, and what's left over could be transferred to other agencies to build social housing. In a lot of cases, those are small or awkwardly shaped parcels of land that wouldn't be of much interest to private developers, but you can still build housing on them. And these are cheaper places to build because they are outside of the red-hot downtown real estate market. There's a lot of good ideas, lots of possibilities for using the LRT as a tool to build a more inclusive city. This is Deirdre Pike. When I spoke to her, she worked at Hamilton Social Planning and Research Council. She's now running for a seat in the provincial legislature. The positives of LRT, they're opportunities. It's whether they'll come true. There's all these opportunities. There was an opportunity when the Iverwind Stadium was built to have good jobs, but they weren't good jobs for people in our community. You know, they renovated City Hall. I forget how many years ago that was completed now. And on the very first floor, they put in a large uh, non-living wage employer, country-style donuts, so that everybody could see Mm -hmm. as soon as you walk in there. We have a 10-year contract with an organization that that pays poverty wages when there's all kinds of other, uh, you know, living wage coffee shops in this community. And so, you know, if you follow the lead of that, how do I know that these great opportunities of LRT are going to be actually jumped on? So there are lots of reasons why solid, visionary plans might not make it off the drawing board. Paul Johnson says there's lots of research and lots of experience from other cities that show transit can be a foundation for building an egalitarian city. But the knowledge that it can be done, well, that's not the point. Well, we translate what we know into what we do. I ask two questions. What do we know and what are we doing? If we are 20 years from now still sitting around talking about what we know, the evidence, the research, the -the on-the-ground experience, and then saying, but we're not doing anything about it, shame on us. We could be having the same conversation 20 years from now, but the reality is that for many, the situation will be much poorer than it is today. Lillian Bloom is a Hamilton, Ontario-based educator and writer. Stephen Dale is an Ottawa-based writer and broadcaster. Stephen has written various interesting books over the years. For links to these, go to www.greenplanetmonitor.net. in here pretty papa please get out of my sight i'm calling it quits now right from this very night you know you've had your day don't stand around you've been a good old wagon 
daddy, but you done broke down. You'd better go down to the blacksmith shop, get yourself an overhaul. There ain't nothing about you. Make a good woman ball. When you were in your prime, you used to love to run around. You've been a good old wagon, daddy, but you done broke down. Mm, when the sun is shining, that's the time to make hay. Now it's raining all the time And you can't make your old wagon pay Nobody wants a baby When a real man can be found You've been a good old wagon daddy But you done broke down Well now there ain't no use in crying All to make a big show this man has taught me more about loving than you will ever know. When I, he is the king of loving, just mine is of a crown. He's a good old wagon daddy and he ain't broke down. You've been a good old wagon, Dave Van Ronk. Speaking of urban activism, the name Tucker Gomberg is synonymous. Gomberg was one of Canada's best-known, articulate, and dynamic urban environmental activists up until his unfortunate death in 2004 at the absurd age of 48. In his hometown of Montreal and adopted Edmonton, Tucker Gomberg struggled tirelessly to bicyclize urban streets to just generally reduce the size of consumptive footprints. I spoke with Tooker in the early 90s. Hi, I'm Tooker Gomberg, city councillor in Edmonton. Um, the situation in Edmonton in terms of global warming is that I would guess on a per capita basis, Edmontonians are the worst in the world for two reasons. First of all, we drive like nobody else in Canada. I mean, the, the per capita car ownership and the use of cars is, is very, very high. You know, it's probably, you know, okay, maybe Los Angeles or some American city w would be comparable. But here, the, the, the normal or the, the usual way for people to get around is by car. Uh, and the second aspect of, of the lifestyle, uh, secondly, I mean, we, we live in a northern climate, so it's cold and we need a lot of energy for heating. And I guess thirdly, um, we, um, the way that we generate electricity is from coal. So, from coal. So coal, you know, coal produces a lot. When you burn coal, there's a lot of CO2 going up into the atmosphere. In terms of energy use, we, we're in the unique, uh, almost unique situation where the city of Edmonton actually owns its own power company. We own Edmonton Power that, that generates and supplies the electricity to Edmontonians. So the city council could decide we want to cut back on electricity consumption. We could say, hey, you know, global warming, yeah, that's important. We're going to cut back on the use of coal by Edmonton Power by 20%, 50%, pick a number. And, and we could also say something like, and I'd love to, to see this happen, we could say, we're going to invest $5 million a year in energy efficiency upgrades 
in the inner city and help people to renovate their old homes, to put in energy efficient light bulbs, to put weather stripping and caulking around their doors and windows, to, you know, to improve their refrigerators and, and uh, their hot water heaters and so forth, and really go you know, nuts and bolts, house by house, uh, room by room, improving the energy efficiency of buildings. Now, what would that do? Well, first of all, we would cut back on our greenhouse gas emissions in a big way. That would be positive. Secondly, I think we, you know, we'd be saying, hey, we're, we're a relatively wealthy community. We think, you know, we think it should start here. We, we can't be pointing the finger at some other community you know, at the, in, the, in the developing world to, to stop burning coal. We have to start right here. Uh, I think also you know, if we could actually uh, weatherize homes and um, teach people energy efficiency and conservation, people's bills would go down. I think that would be really attractive for people in the inner city with, uh, you know, in these times when there's not a lot of money around, people are watching how they spend their money. Geez, I think they'd really appreciate if, if they spent less on their energy bills. And I think that, uh, you know, finally they would create a tremendous amount of employment uh, in unskilled areas. You know, you could train somebody how to do a bit, how to insulate a, uh, an attic and how to put in weather stripping and caulking and how to turn a, you know, take out an old incandescent light bulb and put in a high efficiency fluorescent bulb. Those are things you can train people fairly quickly and uh, we could create a whole, bu you know, a whole bunch of jobs. So revive the local economy, uh, help to uh, protect the environment and improve the quality of life for the people who need it the most, the people in the inner city who don't have a lot of money. I think that's a winning combination. You know, I think that, uh, geez, I think, uh, I don't see how council could say no to that. Tucker Gomberg was a Canadian urban activist, politician, and energizer. Tucker killed himself in 2004, reportedly under the effect of antidepressant medication. Wherever you are, Tucker Gomberg, I salute you, sir. And that's it for today's edition of the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Listen to us on CKUW 95.9 FM, University of Winnipeg Radio here in Winnipeg, and at CKUW.net. Subscribe to our podcast at GreenPlanetMonitor.net or around the world on iTunes. Tell everyone you know. The Green Blues Show is created by Earth Chronicle Productions in cooperation with CKUW 95.9 FM. We are both based in Winnipeg, Canada. I'm David Kattenberg. See you again next time. Bye for now. Bye.